The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Thursday, October 13th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And we're re-watching Breaking Bad. I love all the old characters, Walt, Jesse, you know, of course, guys like Badger. But then someone shows up and you're like, oh yeah, the car wash owner, love that guy. It's like the January 6th committee. After so much time, you kind of forget. But then, ah, it's Cassidy Hutchinson. So he had said something to the effect of, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost. Now, that was when Donald Trump lost before the Supreme Court. There was a memo that Adam Kinzinger read saying, POTUS is pissed. He said it a bit like that. And Cassidy's testimony wasn't hearsay, unlike her previous testimony about grabbing Secret Service agents in the beast, because Hutchinson was right there, as per her testimony. Other witnesses also confirmed that Trump at different times contradicted his public statements, and he knew he lost. That was one main point of the committee. Another was to play heretofore unseen footage of Nancy Pelosi, a video crew, or at least a camera was apparently with her as she evacuated to a secure location inside the Capitol. They have her being told that they're wearing gas masks on the House floor. Can you believe this, she asks. Another development on the House floor, defecation, she is told about. It's literally unbelievable to witness a Speaker of the House having to deal with the consequence of an angry mob literally shitting all over the seat of power. I said, well, we're getting a counterpoint that is going to take time uh, to clean up the poo-poo that they're making all over them, literally and figuratively in the Capitol. The evidentiary value of the Pelosi tapes was, I think, limited, but it was jarring. It was also jarring. This hearing, like the other sessions before, re-reminded the public of what should be clear, that Donald Trump was and is a danger, and if left unchecked, he will continue to be. To that end, the committee ended with a 9 nothing vote to subpoena the former president. Practically, they will have no way to compel him. Politically, if the Democrats lose the midterms, the subpoena will die. But the central argument behind the subpoena that there is one person in the middle of all of this and we need some accountability from him, that is true. The plea will be ignored yet it is clearly inarguable. On the show today, today's a strap-in spiel. I have a lot of thoughts on the NYU chemistry professor who is dismissed because chemistry is a very hard subject to get an A in that could not be countenanced in 2022. But first, Bruce McCulloch is a writer, director, and actor best known for his work on the iconic Canadian sketch comedy show, Kids in the Hall. Starting tomorrow night, He's returning to his off-Broadway show called Bruce McCulloch Tales of Bravery and Stupidity. Bruce comes by to talk about his show, his work on kids, and what's up next. Bruce McCulloch is one of the kids in the hall which came out with a new series, the first in 27 years. Do you ever worry about losing your finger like that guy that got drunk with my dad at the Legion while I waited in a cab? (laughs) Because if you lose your finger on your handshaking hand, you can never meet anybody new. (laughs) Like a woman to replace your wife. 
it just snuck up on me. What do you what do you think? I have time to watch every Amazon offering. And I gotta say, it wasn't for me exactly like the Beatles reuniting, because they got a couple dead members. That's the Monty Python equivalent. It wasn't like the Rolling Stones reuniting because they never broke up. I guess that's the Saturday Night Live equivalent. What's right in between for me? I don't know, something like The Who or Creedence Clearwater Revival, or I should probably make a punk rock reference because the How about the, the Pixies? That it would be like the Pixies. That is exactly right. Although the kids in the hall have less lyrics about submarines and weird twins. Good. But beyond Good Pixies knowledge. I do, no. yeah. <laughs> Bruce is, as I said, one of the founding members of Kids in the Hall, and he will be performing his solo show October 14th through 29th at the Soho Playhouse, Tales of Bravery and Stupidity. Welcome to the gist, Bruce. I love being on the gist. It's good. It's good to have you. It's been a good one minute. What's the line between bravery and stupidity? And how do you know when you've crossed it? Well, you only usually know afterwards. You know, my family says that um, I put myself in weird situations just for the material. (laughs) It's like, why are you fighting with another parking attendant? I think so. I'll have a story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I've crossed it over and over. And I think in in my 20s and 30s, I had no idea what the line was or that there was one. And then sort of when I crossed 50, I looked back and went, wow, you sure did a lot of weird shit. Do you have brothers or sisters or other family members who act like that, but don't have a renowned sketch group where they could say, oh, you're doing it for the material? Oh, yeah. No, my sister is the funniest person in the world. And like every story ends with, and then I burnt my car down with my cigarette. And it's like, (laughs) and we'll do anything, you know, um, scam, a wedding ring, like she'll do anything. And but she doesn't. She's not gone to jail yet. Well, the, and which would be fine. They have a much more lenient penal system in Canada. And also, we'd save a lot on all those car fees, you know, burning them down. Are they renting to her anymore at this point? No, no, no. She just buys little yellow, what we call shit cars in Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think that you've mellowed with age? And is that a part of uh, just the inner workings of a human being, maybe the testosterone uh, slows down, or maybe it is something more mental like wisdom and it's not worth getting into it at every juncture. Or third explanation, without a sketch comedy show, without the place to put all the material, do you generate less quote unquote material by getting in fights? Well, no, I don't get in fights anymore. I used to get in fights and dress like a punk before I found comedy. And then once I did, it was just like, no, I'm just going to wear these same army pants for three years and not get in fights. Um, but I do think that, you know, I remember I used to get nervous before I went on stage and then I, and then I turned 50 and then I never got nervous again. And I think it's because so much of my young work was about me proving that I, I, I had something to say or I knew what I was doing. And then now it is, I just want to sort of talk about who we are and how we're connected. So there's, the point of view slightly changes and it becomes less about ego, I think. Without that urgency, you know, I've got something to prove. How does, I'll ask you a two-part question. How does the process of writing change and how do you think the product changes? And I'll also note, maybe the other members don't have that urgency, but this is for you. How do you reflect on, you know, without having something to prove, tell me about the changes of the process and the product. Well, I always have something to prove. You know, I remember remember when I saw Mavis Staple, she was 85 and she was playing and she was so great. And then at the end of the show, she said, we have CDs for sale in the lobby. And, <laughs> sorry, to do, sorry to do a Mavis. Don't cancel me. Yeah. I did Mavis Staples. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like I wake up every day and I work as hard as I do when I was 26. And I think I think the quest to make things 
um, gets bigger actually, as I get older, like I want to, you know, and I'm at that age where some people have gone and friends, you know, I, I reflect on a, a great friend who died in my show and it's like, he was in a great band that doesn't work anymore. Well, let's just keep going. And I think that was, that was a thing for me, you know, with the resurgence or to do the, to do the show again on Amazon and to get out and do a one person show. It's like, oh no, no, I've crossed 60, but I've got a lot I want to still say and talk about and commune with an audience. Do you think your other four members are, the other four members of the group are of that mindset too? Well, they are. I mean, Kevin's doing a rock opera in Detroit that opens this weekend. Um, Scott is always obsessed with everything Scott's obsessed with, which is everything in the world. And, you know, he does his Buddy Cole thing, which is brilliant. And then Dave and and Mark are more like gentlemen farmers that come every so often and just show you a radish. When you were writing together, I know that there were a couple of teams, right? And you and um, Mark were from the western part of Canada, Alberta, came together with Kevin and Dave from, were they Toronto-based? Yes. Yep. Okay. And then Scott joins in. And as you Scott know- Scott comes from Gayland. He comes from Gaylandia, right? Which is near Newfoundland. Um, he's a Newfie. And is the, did those writing partnerships uh, essentially stick? Um, and, and is the new show, was the new show mostly you and Mark writing together, Kevin and Dave writing together? Or over the years, did they all just cross-pollinate? Well, I was I made a conscious effort because, yes, Mark has, has, been my, has been my ride or die and we share a certain weirdness that like he'll say, I'll say, what about the world of recycling? The wonderful world of recycling, everyone will stare at me and then Mark will, will do a character and we'll be gone for two uh -huh. months. So I think we have a natural weirdness. And then I think um, Kevin and Dave have a natural professionalism and rhythm and timing that we don't possess. And then Scott's just this um, <laughs> in the other room, just coming up with with his stuff. So we we are a natural pair. But with the show, because it's like, I don't know if we'll ever do this again. I really wanted to do a little bit, you know, to do super drunk with Dave yeah. and to do to do stuff with Kevin. And so, you know, and I, I, Scott and I love to do stuff, too, because we're the Cathy's and we are Fran and Gordon. So, you know, I, Kat, Scott's, a, Scott's a tough customer because his, his scripts are usually over 1,000 pages mm -hmm. long, which, you know, generally... Uh, sketch should be about five pages long. Um, and so you sort of whittle what it down. Saying, which comports he's with a lot. With he's like said. a restaurant yeah. where they're not so sure about the food, how good it is. So they give you a uh -huh. lot. But then eventually it's really good. But he's 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 the most fun to work with. In some As ways. opposed to the shitty soup, which they're very specific about. They know it's shitty and man does it deliver. Yeah, and but and people still keep up, you know ordering. It. Well, it's a draw, you know. There is yeah. there is that principle of if it's just a little shitty, it's not quite succeeding. But once you commit to full shittiness, you can market the hell out of it. <laughs> and that's been our career. Among the group, um, there must have been creative tensions, but you know, I, I am assuming a little. Then again. You are Canadian, so I assume there's less tension than among us uh, people from the south of the border. What was it like? Was that ever a big problem with uh, the creative process? Well, of course. I mean, you know, I mean, look at any, and I've worked with rock bands or like, you know, Trailer Park Boys or other people who it's like groups of men in their 20s trying to figure it out. No one told me we weren't supposed to yell at each other. Right. No one said you weren't supposed to. In, in fact, I think I was taught in some way to fight for your stuff. And then only sort of when you kind of get a little bit older, like 40 or something, you go, oh, other people want to be heard. 
-hmm. And then there's something called self-worth that people want to feel. And so part of my, I think the last 10 years or 20 years of my career, I've kind of tried to be great to work with um, in response to how great I wasn't to work with probably in my 30s. Okay, but I would say in defense of you, that, that that's probably the right philosophy when you're c- coming in to direct uh, a rom-com or certainly an established show or working with, uh, with a CBC series. You know, you're either a hired gun or part of the process. But when it's kids in the hall, when it's your family, I'm not saying that fighting along the way was a great way to do things in terms of interpersonal relationships, but an argument can be made, unless you think it's justification, that if you look at the quality of, let's call it the art, the quality of the product, why would you want to screw with that process? If the other four of you were essentially from the mindset of we're going to have tough hides and we're going to fight for us too, then don't we look back on it and say, well, that mindset actually worked for what it was? Uh, yeah, it did. But I think we could, you know, you can adjust it. And by the way, we still have arguments and sure. we still go, oh, you still go, you know, come on, dude, your piece is way too long. Like we still go there or something or it's like, you know what? I don't like this one. Not not the best one of yours. Um, but I do think, you know, it's well, it's like <laughs> it's like being in a marriage or a relationship. You, you know, you can't you can't name call or something like there's some line. But of course. And. You know, at certain times, especially as we've gotten older and we've been at, at this, you know, almost 40 years now, uh, it's not us against each other anymore. It's us against the exterior world because it's like it, it's hard work to go into or it's hard work to sell a show and to make a show and to, um, you know, collaborate with Amazon or whatever. So it's us against everybody else. So we're not fighting each other. So we're actually more supportive because you know, before it was like, we thought, no, no, my piece has to be the best and I have to get all my pieces in. And we don't think that anymore. We just kind of want the show to be better. Can you remember an argument you had or something where you dug your heels in, maybe about one of the other members' sketches and looking back, maybe, maybe you realize this pretty quickly. You were wrong. Oh yeah, no, I, yeah, I think there was a couple of Kevin things. I'm, my God, they did a, I, I was such a purist. When I first started out, I thought if you repeated a character or ever did a sketch twice, you were a hack. Which like, that's a pretty high bar. And then I remember Kevin and Dave did a, a parody of a fashion show. And it was just, oh, it pissed me off so bad. And it's just like, we can't do parodies. We can't, that's not what we do. And then I, and then I see it now, it's like one of my favorite things. It's super funny. So I think, I think sometimes, and I had labeled myself like, as all these things I wouldn't do, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do promos for my show. And then you look back and go, oh, what an asshole. And so, you know, we I've realized that the group is best on its balance, which is Weird Mark, Weird Bruce, um, Scott talking about the world, Kevin and Dave, you know, doing great kind of modern vaudeville. Yeah. Oh, modern vaudeville. That's right. What about the other way where one or maybe a couple members really resisted an idea you had and give yourself credit. It really worked. I don't know if they would say they were wrong, but looking back, you could say they were wrong. Oh, lots of stuff. You know, I did a fairly indulgent piece called Love and Sausages, which <laughs> almost broke up the troupe. The first cut was like 11 minutes long and the, the director said, I can't even cut one frame. It's like, they will kill me. <laughs> you know, get out of the editing room. I'm taking this over. Um, I think we all have lots of those. And I think that looking back, that was part of the joy of it. And some of my stuff was, you know, I do a lot of stuff that didn't have one joke in it. 
um, and maybe had some laughs. And, and then Dave would say, I don't understand. Each day we work, what, what is this? Well, it's sort of like Tarkovsky. Who's Tarkovsky? And so, but, you know, that's just the way we work. I've seen your live shows. I've seen them in the last uh, 10, 15 years, but often it's it's the, the classics. You got to play the hits. Like I say, you go see the, home, the Stones, you want to hear Satisfaction. How often were you getting together, if ever, to write new material uh, and to write uh, a whole lot of new material, maybe not just one thing? Well, you know, all our, we've disguised our tours. I mean, we've always had new material in every tour we've done. Right, so right. it's 30, 40% new material. But that would literally mean, you know, three or four sketches per tour, as opposed to this season, which are five sketches for every episode in the series. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, that was sort of the joy of this, which is, you know, we started just before COVID really hit. And so we did what we actually haven't done that much of. We were together in a room all writing, which we didn't do that much of during this, this series. I would talk to Mark or I'd have my writer's assistant come over and Scott would be up all night getting blasted and writing, you know, his crazy scripts and then bring them in. Uh, but we didn't always, you know, kind of pitch and like work on ideas together. So we had a really nice golden time of just, you know, I got nothing, you know. What do you got? Oh, guy goes down the street on a, an easy chair going 30 miles an hour. Oh, that's cool. Like just, and that's the most fun is not to yeah. come in with your protected ideas. Oh, I've written this. I hope everybody likes it. It's just to be really vulnerable, both vulnerable and a gunslinger. Like, what do you got? I got nothing. Okay. I got maybe one thing. You know, it's funny when I, because Mark is always the last one to want to do everything. And he's always reluctant. And I remember we were sort of discussing doing the show and I, went out for lunch with him in LA. And then you know, we were talking and he said, well, you know, I got one idea. And he sort of pitched me an idea. It's like, okay, you got, if you got one idea, you're in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's the way it works. You got to put that idea somewhere. Yeah. And the world's most, uh, the world's biggest company is a good place for that. So a couple observations just about you and your persona. I find you to play the sweetest kid in the hall to play the sweetest characters and also the most brusque. I mean, your businessman character is probably the one I'd least like to work for. Do you find that? Yeah, no. Well, I do think that's, that is very astute. I think, I do feel like I have both of those things in me. I am super sweet and soulful uh, or, you know, I'm, I'm crushed by humanity. Do you know what I mean? That's part of my show is talking about how hard it is to to look up humanity and see a, a woman with red glasses get splashed by a bus on her birthday or whatever. But also I'm a mofo and I come from Alberta and I, you know, I shoveled sand and had bar fights and was a punk and come from a pretty tough, you know, childhood. So I'm, I'm both of those. It's like, I'm the guy who traditionally brings the hammer down on people around the kids in the hall. <laughs> when, you know, when I have to, when somebody has to pull the, the plug on a, on a photo shoot, it's always me. Um, but yeah, and I also, you know, worry about everybody in the room too. Bruce McCullough is one man show, Tales of Bravery and Stupidity, playing October 14th through 29th at the Soho Playhouse. And of course, this is how Amazon works with its archiving. It's still there, the new series. And you can also find the documentary, The Kids in the Hall of Comedy, Punks, on Amazon Prime as well. Bruce, excellent to talk to you. Thank you so much. That was excellent. That was fun. I was that so was worried fun. that this was going to be abusive and triggering, mm -hmm. um, yeah. but it wasn't. It was joy-filled.
that's my i mean that's my usual meeting. <laughs> that's your that's brand usual, yeah that's how i do it yeah. <laughs> when i get when i get a comedy legend sometimes i'll beat him about the head and chest dan Aykroyd left a bloodied a bloodied sad pulp but you know you skated you were nice put on the charm <laughs> i'm a charm monkey And now the spiel. Professor Maitland Jones Jr.'s employment at NYU was cut short because of a student petition. Jones taught organic chemistry, a demanding course with rigorous, trigger word, standards, another trigger word, and several students struggled. Remote learning because of the pandemic further exacerbated the difficulty of the class, and 82 of his 350 students signed a petition. They complained, quote, they were not given grades that would allow them to get into medical school. And they criticized Professor Jones, quote, condescending and demanding tone. Quotes from the New York Times article by Stephanie Saul, who saw the petition, Jones never did. The school offered the failing students the unprecedented for NYU option of withdrawing without receiving a grade and wrote to Jones that he should, quote, extend a gentle but firm hand to the students and those who pay the tuition bills. If the customer is always right, then 82 customers complaining to the manager means heads are going to roll. Jones was esteemed in his field. He literally wrote the textbook on organic chemistry. He was a tenured professor at Princeton. He retired 15 years ago and had been teaching on yearly contracts at NYU. His contract was not renewed. The story of Students Unite to Fire Professor Who Failed Them gained traction. And as much as you might say, well, it really can't be that simple. That, that can't have happened, right? There's got to be some egregiously offensive act or statement buried in there. Some legal liability must be playing a role. No. Jones's class was just too hard. And the very concept of very hard university class needs to be rethought we are told. An NYU spokesman said of classes where a high percentage of students are expected and do receive D's and F's, quote, do these courses really need to be punitive in order to be rigorous? I interpret that as asking, do we really need to give out D's and F's? So realizing that this discussion could so easily slip into a rote conversation of the softness of one generation or participation trophy culture, I set out to find the best arguments defending the university's decision. Indeed, I found many academics arguing that an excessive emphasis on rigor is a disservice to students. Faye Flam in Bloomberg interviewed chemistry professor Stacy Lowry-Bretz of Miami University of Ohio. She told Flam that she detests the very idea of weed-out courses. Quote, I'd like to be a gateway, not a gatekeeper, Professor Bretz said. Another professor, Aluwatoyan Asojo, chair of chemistry at Hampton University, was repulsed by the idea of weeding out students. Quote, that is absurd. How could I be the one who decides if an 18-year-old is not qualified to be a physician? A third professor said he hates the term weed out classes, adding, quote, every single student in that class was capable of success. I deeply dislike the notion that we teach these courses in order to weed people out. We don't. We teach these courses in order to bring them in. And that professor was Maitland Jones. He was interviewed in the Chronicle of Education after his dismissal. He is saying there is no intent to weed out those who fail. Jones does not differ from any of the other reform-minded professors who talk about helping students succeed, and he averred that there was no reason that the students who failed should have, but since 
they did. It was his job to accurately record that. On the other side of this debate was one professor who does disagree with issuing too many failing grades, Jessica Calarco, a professor of sociology at Indiana University. In an op-ed for the New York Times, Calarco wrote that, quote, courses that are meant to distinguish between serious and unserious students, it has become clear, often do a better job distinguishing between students who have ample resources and those who don't. Now, there's no evidence that Jones's organic chemistry class was some sort of divining rod for the serious or unserious. It was an assessment of who mastered the material of organic chemistry. Not that simple, argues Calarco, framing good grades and hard classes as a proxy for something deeper. To her, it stands for rewarding those who already have the rewards of privilege. Her solution, quote, the broader goal of teaching for equity and with empathy, which means ensuring that students get the support they need. Well, who's against supporting students? It depends on how you define it. So to see how Calarco defines equitable grading or grading with equity and empathy, I followed the hyperlink under the phrase equity and empathy, which took me to a webinar that Dr. Calarco presented at Indiana University. In it, she begins with a land acknowledgement, then a, sorry, in it, she begins with a land acknowledgement, then a moment of silence for the toll of the pandemic and policing. Uh, during that time, the screen displayed the words holding a place for pain. This is all derogore in the de-rigor mindset. Professor Calarco eventually got to the topic of grading, in which her advice to fellow professors emphasized flexibility and leniency. Let's imagine, for example, that the class is an introductory engineering class. Some of those students probably took AP Physics and AP Calc in high school. Uh, some might have even been on our robotics team or gone to coding camp in the summers. And those students, given what we know about the K-12 education system, are much more likely to come from privileged backgrounds. Meanwhile, other students in that same class probably went to high schools that didn't offer AP classes or extracurricular activities, and they, maybe their families didn't have money for extra classes or tutors or special camps. So which of those two groups of students do you think will be more confident about learning in their intro engineering class? And which do you think will consistently do better on things like quizzes and tests? If we grade students on a curve, or if we only give students one chance to earn a particular grade, we're almost automatically going to be grading students on their privilege and punishing students for facing challenges that were far outside their control. Professor Calarco's students clearly like her. Her ratings online are great. Ratings, by the way, were a rubric that damned Maitland Jones and factored into his dismissal. But of Calarco, the recent ones read, quote, 10 out of 10, recommend this prof. She is so sweet and the class is a very easy A, simple homework and a few easy projects. Next, Professor Calarco makes this class a breeze. Her assignments were all ungraded, and you were asked to give yourself a grade at the end of the semester. I had the option of doing this class 100% online and still managed to learn a lot. She's very understanding, and the workload is very light. Next, Professor Calarco has recorded videos so you could choose to come to class or watch it online on your own time. By the way, Professor Jones also recorded videos at his own expense. The class is also ungraded. This is Professor Calarco's class. So as long as you try and submit work, which can be submitted anytime as long as it's before the semester ends, then you're fine. I personally chose to come to class because she makes her lectures interesting. All right, it sounds like a fun, easy class, but organic chemistry is not. It is a fun, difficult class. Or 
This is the experience of most people who've taken it, a not-so-fun, difficult class. The point is, the difficulty isn't a feature or a bug, it's just a reality, a reality for the difficult, important concepts that are being presented and must be mastered as a foundation for a scientific education. Sociology is what they call a soft science. Chemistry is not. This is going to sound dismissive, possibly exclusionary, but if our future doctors and scientists can adequately grasp the concepts of organic chemistry, we are going to get worse doctors. If our aspiring sociologists fail to grasp the theories of Emile Durkheim, especially the ones who didn't go to high school with a functionalism team, I think we might be fine. Or we'll be exactly where we are today, with op-eds by sociologists arguing exactly the points and exactly the ways that you would exactly expect from a field of study that mistrusts privilege, which can bear fruits like curiosity, creativity, knowledge, and ability. Of course, in the name of rigor, a field of study could be consecrating incorrect ideas. I'm sure there were rigorous phrenology courses in 1840. False rigor, needless rigor, needlessly exclusionary practices in the name of rigor. These all need to be discontinued, but they aren't really rigor. And there really is a critique of rigor within academia. Writing in the Chronicle of Higher Education in 2021, University of North Carolina professors Jordan Jack and Vijay Sathi authored an article headlined, It's Time to Cancel the Word Rigor. They say, quote, it's time we recognize rigor for the exclusionary concept that it is and for the preferential practices it usually promotes. Being exclusionary is ipso facto bad in this worldview, by the way. It's why Dr. Calarco argues that standards should be lowered so less capable students get into medical schools. She doesn't phrase it that way. She writes, the nation is currently facing a shortage of doctors, especially black and Latino doctors, and research suggests that academic gatekeeping is a big reason. I'd say that's true, academic gatekeeping, keeping out people who medical schools think do not qualify for medical school. And I just ask you to decide for yourself if it's a good thing that you could be reasonably sure that when you visit a doctor, the doctor performed sufficiently well as an undergraduate to earn her or his place in medical school. Do you think that serves society well or poorly? Also, how would you set standards within medical schools if we are to take on faith the idea that gatekeeping is wrong and exclusionary? How do you ever keep anyone from becoming a doctor? What do you do when the idea takes hold that good grades are mostly a function of the loathed idea of privilege? In their op-ed, Safi and Jordan Jack claim a rigorous approach privileges students who already have high academic literacy. Academic literacy is defined as... Understand a range of academic vocabulary and context. Understand relations between different parts of a text. See sequence and order. Do simple numerical estimations and computations that are relevant to academic information. It goes on for a while, but what it all is, is it's a fine definition of a good student. Academic literacy means you are a good student. So they are asserting that college classes privilege good students. More difficult subject matter will be harder for less good students to master. The better a student you are, the better chance you have of mastering college classes. This is all true. This all seems like a tautology. I don't know what insight it gives us, but it seems to put wind in the sails of those who assail privilege. Of course, 
Here's my to be fair graph. Of course, and to be fair, every effort should be made to reach every student to maximize the chances that a poor student becomes an adequate student, that an adequate student becomes a good one. Maybe he could leap from poor to good with, I think I saw a movie about this, you know, glasses or teacher really caring. And this should start at the earliest ages. But, you know, blasting apart notions of proficiency, mastery, or even achievement, it's not fairer or more equitable, it's scattershot and chaotic. Good students will be better at schooling. Exclusion seems like such a pejorative word, but isn't exclusion necessary if we're excluding people who would be insufficient to the task of medicine or chemistry or sociology if such a thing can be conceived? Maybe NYU just can't countenance such cruelty. I mean, once they assemble their student body by rejecting 87% of applicants. I've tried in this spiel not to make cheap points or preach too much to the up by their bootstraps brigade. I'm sure there are some professors out there who really do take a cruel glee in being exceptionally tough graders. And the time of the pandemic was certainly a time for allowing for greater accommodation. Like, for instance, the policy of withdrawing without a besmirched transcript, but not the idea of dismissing Maitland Jones. And by the way, I do believe this will all get worse before it gets better. Standards and rigor will become one of those words like meritocracy that carries the whiff of ill repute within the academy. And there are more people taking classes in sociology than in chemistry. The sociology worldview pressures the pillars of the academy. Even chemistry students have absorbed the sociological concepts of privilege and equity, and they know how to wield them for gain, or more benignly, they're just so steeped in them, they know of no other way to operate in the world. And there's one major that will give them A's for saying so, and one that will punish their teachers who gave them the grades that they actually earned. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, A-minus in human anatomy and physiology, too. Joel Patterson is The Gist senior producer. He earned an A in Psych 416, Abnormal Psychology. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions, aced her zoology exam. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. and thanks for listening. We're humans, and so we're natural, and so what we're doing is not man-made, in my opinion. And you could almost say the blind watchmaker is using us. <laughs> <laughs>